Hello and welcome to the Irish Times Book Club podcast with me, Laura Slattery. This month, I talked to author, playwright and actor Lisa Harding about her award-winning debut novel, Harvesting. The interview was recorded at the Irish Writers' Centre in Dublin in November and we talked about everything from the research she did for this work to the process of adapting it for the screen. I hope you enjoyed this conversation with Lisa Harding. Harvesting is the story of Nico and Sammy, two young girls exploited and enslaved by pimps and traffickers. When we first meet them, Sammy is a spirited but self-destructive Dublin teenager whose emotional problems spring from parental neglect. Nico is a studious 12-year-old from Moldova whose father takes her out of school and appears to have other ominous plans for her. Sammy and Nico later meet in a Dublin brothel. Published by New Island in 2017, with a new paperback edition just out now, Harvesting has been praised by the Irish Times for its vivid, character-driven and highly dramatic take on what is an underreported horror, while Roddy Doyle has described it as shocking and shockingly good. Sabina Coyne-Higgins says it is a book that needs to be widely read. The winner of this year's Kate O'Brien Award, Harvesting was also shortlisted for the Kerry Group Irish Novel of the Year and Lisa was nominated for Newcomer of the Year at the Irish Book Awards. But to explain how and why she wrote this book, please welcome Lisa Harding. Um, hi, it's lovely to be here. Thanks for coming on a cold November's evening. Um, so, yeah, the book, this is my first novel, and the book came because I was, I was acting at the time, and I was asked to be involved in a campaign run by the Body Shop and the Children's Rights Alliance, and it was called Stop Sex Trafficking of Children and Young People, and that was back in 2012. And it was, like, I hadn't, I didn't actually consciously set out to write about this topic or to even write a novel, because I was writing plays at the time, but I was left with these stories, um, and they were so. I guess they they were they were so they were shocking, but more than that, they were so human, you know. And it was the connection I felt to these 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 girls, these stories, these survivors. They were testimonies that were given to me, um, but they wouldn't go away. And I wrote a collection of short stories. I was doing an M Phil in Trinity, and I wrote eighteen short stories. But these characters kept kind of creeping onto the pages. I also wrote a different uh, play. And then, yeah. But you just felt that you had to write this novel. Yeah, I mean, the voices just kind of came. And initially I thought they were dramatic monologues, which is actually kind of the form of the novel. That's how it evolved. And I thought it might be a play when it first came out because I had loads of different voices. I had like a you know, chorus of voices. Um, and I had some male voices from the world as well, which I, I couldn't fully embody, so I had to ditch them because I was kind of commenting on them. I couldn't quite climb inside them the way I could with the, with the girls. And in particular, Sammy and Nico, they kind of possessed me. They really did, you know, once, once I let them in. So what was the next stage? You sort of, you sat down to write a first draft based on what you knew from the monologues that you did and the voices that you had uh, developed in your head. But then, as I understand it, at the first draft stage, you then sort of consulted with other organisations about what they yeah. thought yeah. of what you'd written. Yeah, because I was concerned that, you know, I had that question, who am I to write this topic? Because I'm, I'm not an expert. I haven't survived this level of trauma. So I, I was concerned that, you know, I was the right person to give voice. But I, I, I did write a draft on my own and I sent it out to a couple of NGOs, one in Ruama, CCF Moldova and, and um, it, it, sorry, CCF Moldova is in Moldova and Ru- Ruam are in Dublin. Mm-hmm. Um, both of them 
were very supportive of the book. And in particular, um, the CEO of Ruama, Sarah Benson, she said, you know, a book like this can touch readers' minds and hearts in a way that no amount of reporting of facts can. Because you're going to climb right inside the experience with the girls and humanise them. Whereas when we read about them, they're faceless, you know, statistics on, on the page. So it's easy to dissociate that way. But they were both really behind it. And then the Immigrant Council of Ireland, the Children's Rights Alliance, I sent it around to people who really know this world before I even sent it out to agents. And that was difficult. It was very difficult to, to sell. And unfortunately, since you first, you know, got involved in this project, it's become an even bigger problem. Yeah. Yeah, it is. No, it is, of course, because the migrant crisis is providing kind of, you know, it's an awful word to use, but fodder for the industry. And it's a, it's such a criminal, it's such a kind of, you know, it's so... Um, it's so highly charged, this world. It's so secretive. It's so hidden and clandestine that, that nobody can really get a grasp on, on the actual statistics. It's worth, they reckon it's worth 250 million in, in Ireland alone. And there's been no prosecution. So, so it continues, this essentially, continues, this unabated. Is, well, it's flourishing. It is flourishing. Yeah, and there's a market. And that's an extraordinary thing to think that some of our Irish, you know, fellow men are, are visiting these girls. These girls are... They're, they're um, obviously underage and they pay more for this, you know. So um, Sammy, uh, who is, is 15 mm-hmm. and is the older of the two, but of course she's, she's, she's full of um, what S- uh, Sophie McIntosh called, I thought very um, cleverly, performative trust, uh, toughness. Um, but she's really, it's just bravado and she's incredibly naive and vulnerable and she's suffered um, neglect and she's sort of absorbed... Um, her mother's alcoholism, and she's uh, she's she's self harm, harming. Yeah. I mean that that's a kind of a shock in early in the book that, she, that the extent to which she's kind of self destructive. So is that is that kind of behaviour and uh, situation is that something that actually is preyed upon by some people? Yeah, of course. Uh, I mean, um, she is. You know, she's the most likely girl to get groomed in school, for instance, because she uses her sexuality as a currency and it's her way of getting attention. So she does that from a very early age. She thinks she's in control. And actually, Sammy was very unconscious for me when I was writing her. I, I felt that it was important that, like, the girls weren't just presented as victims. You know, they're victims of circumstance, absolutely. But they are teenage girls and they're full of hormones and dreams and hysteria and all that goes with being a teenage, you know, teenage and humor girl. As and, well. and humor. Sammy is inherently funny. I mean, she's she's dark, but she uses humor as a shield and she uses humor to survive. Um, but, and I know some readers have had great difficulty with Sammy because she's kind of on the face of it unlikable. But that was important to me, you know, that I didn't present just, and I don't mean to diminish, you know, anybody by using the word just a victim, mm-hmm. but... That was that was my whole purpose with this, you know, that these are not just victims. They are fully rounded human beings with dreams, you know, their sisters, their daughters, their maybe one day could be mothers, you know, um, if their lives weren't ruptured so so young. So that was really important to me. And Sammy, I felt it was kind of important to have that contrast between Sammy and Nico. You know, Nico is is on the face of it is purer. And she comes, she's the absolute, you know she's kind of the ingenue in a sense in this play you know 
And yet she she's the one who realizes exactly how bad their situation is. Yeah. I mean, I think it's a very interesting contrast between the sort of banality of the I mean, I called it a brothel, but it's actually it's just like an it's a, a holding house place in a, yeah. in a in a housing yeah. estate and it's a holding place. Yeah. And they actually go out yeah. at nighttime. Um and Nico sort of thinks this is uh, you know, although the house is, seems uh, kind of uh, comfortable to her, the actual reality of the situation is grim. Yeah. Whereas um, there's a novel that they find lying around the house, which is like a crime novel, and it's just a very extreme sort of tale of kidnapping. But she thinks, well, at least the kidnapped victim is f- trying to get out. Yeah, <laughs> Whereas I mean, they're I, stuck. Yeah, what I was playing with, 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 you know, with that was I, I wanted to inhabit that space of waiting, you know, uh, it was really important to me that this was not a graphic, salacious novel. You know, I didn't want to do any of that. And I didn't want to even really depict the the, the violence or the actual horror um, of sexual trauma. I wanted to, I wanted to inhabit them. Um, you know, I was trying to imagine what it would be like to wait, you know, for this to come, perpetual waiting, and how they fill their time. And they do numb out on telly, and there was one crap book in the house. Um, so, they're, you know, Nico reads it over and over and over. And it was it was like something as a child that I used to do, was read, to escape whatever was going on around. And really, I was, I guess, as a writer, I was interested in exploring trauma, you know, and how, and what, how we survive trauma, and what what we do in that moment. Um, and I remember doing a lot of, you know, research around it and words like dissociation that seem to have a kind of a negative connotation are actually a wonderful surviving mechanism, you know. So people can, in the, in the moment, split from themselves and kind of fly away. Um, and the power of the imagination was something that I was really interested in as a writer because it's something that I used to use, you know, whenever I was stressed or um, worried as a child, I'd go to that that place and both the girls have highly developed imaginations and that's one of their survival tools and I really I loved that as I was writing it you know that that they are in the worst of circumstances but there's a part of them that is untouched you know um so um I'd like to actually ask you now to maybe read a passage from Harvesting and you're going to read a bit about that comes from from Sammy's uh, point of view yeah yeah, so so this is, I'm going to read a little bit from uh, both girls, and this is the, the point in the novel where both of them leave home for the last time. Now, Sammy doesn't know this is her last time. She's always running away from home. She's 15. Um, I won't, it's pretty self-explanatory, you know, the kind of home she comes from in this passage. Um, but to give you some context, she's been out all night again, knacker drinking, and she's got herself into all sorts of trouble. She's been at hospital and um, she's kind of wandering the streets the next morning. Just, she's having, you know, she's, it's an interior monologue, actually. She just doesn't know um, what she's going to do with herself. So I find myself walking in the direction of that house. It's midday and all the curtains are still drawn. Dad must be away on one of his trips. I open the door and tiptoe in, careful not to wake the sleeping beauty. She'll probably be out for the count till well past five when it's permissible for her to start the booze again. It's a pretty decent hour, really. She's good at keeping up appearances. It amazes me how well she can scrub up when she has to, although I wonder whether the madness has inhabited all of her by now. It's all I can see of her in her eyes, which are yellowed and watery, shot through with little pink veins. Maybe strangers don't look that closely. 
I go to my room, change out Elise's oversized sweats and undersized converse and take down my purple spotted ladies case from the top of the wardrobe, the one on wheels that dad picked up on his last trip. I also get my rucksack, go to the fridge, open the door and take all the stuff that is labelled do not touch. I stuff the backpack full to bulging even if I don't like a lot of this shit, it's the principle of the thing. Her handbag is sitting on the kitchen table and I empty its contents and lift her cards, lipstick, mascara and 300 euro. Dad's guilt-induced presence of cash. He'd never buy the booze for her, that way he's not really complicit. Not really. Just before I leave for what'll probably be the last time, I have a momentary pang of conscience. Who'll put a blanket over her after she's collapsed on the floor? Who'll check up to see she hasn't swallowed her own vomit? Who'll listen to see if she's still breathing? Who'll put a warm face cut to her forehead when she wakes with a banging headache and bring her sweet milky tea and toast in bed? Who'll climb into bed beside her and snuggle her when she's out cold, her body jerking in one of its recurring nightmares? And then I think... Who'll take her ranting rages now? Not me, no siree, I'm out of here. Had enough of feeling winded from the force of her words slamming me against the walls. Had enough of lying in the dark, coiled, waiting for the door to open. The bed springs to creak, her hand reaching out, not knowing what's coming. Still, old habits die hard, so I creep to her door, which is half open, and listen to her strangled snores. I wonder where Dad is now, who he's with. He couldn't handle this house of women, poor old Dad, always trying to keep the peace, deny the truth. Well, maybe now I'd smack him round the mouth that she's your wife, your responsibility, not mine. Never was, Pops. I walk into the room carefully so as not to creak any floorboards and look at her bloated face creased against the pillow, her hair lank and limp, greying at the roots. The pictures of her when she was younger show a tall, dark-haired, dark-eyed girl with plump lips and cheeks. What happened, Mum? I try on the word for size and it sits like a lump of raw liver in my mouth. Mother, that's what you are. Mother. Thank you very much, Lisa. That's the voice of Sammy, um, who's the Dublin 15-year-old in harvesting. And her story, you know, is different from Nico's. Um, Sammy's father is is absent. Nico's father is very much sort of in Mm. control of his household in, in, in Moldova. And, you know, from... From Ireland, uh, it's it's just hard to st- uh, sort of comprehend the kind of familial betrayal that happens in these situations. And we know it's not unique and it's based on testimony. But tell me a little bit about Nico's story and, and, and how that starts. Right. Well, I mean, so Nico's father ostensibly sells her into marriage. So he doesn't sell her into trafficking. Um, He tells himself that he's selling her into a better life. They come from a really impoverished background in Moldova. Um, So this was 2012, you think, when I was involved in this campaign. And thankfully, things are changing on the ground now in the villages. There's a lot more awareness. Um, Like people, NGOs are going in and they're becoming aware of these false promises. Like, you know, jobs, nannies, au pairs, marriages, but she's very, very young and that's illegal in Moldova. So don't think that's common practice. She, mm. You know, you're not, you're not married off at, at 12, 13. Yeah. 17 is the legal age. So, um, but it does happen. And I was kind of, I was tussling with that idea of there is love in this family, but he's, you know, he's, he's, he is, uh, he's deluded obviously. And you're right. There is a patriarchy, um, within that family system and you know her mom doesn't have a say at the end of the day he finds a good husband and he tells himself she's going to a better life 
So, so yeah, I mean, ultimately she is, you know, Peter is, is not her husband. He's, he's a trafficker. And he takes her, he takes her from Moldova to Italy, to London, to Belfast, to Dublin, which is a route. Um, and I mean, there's, I mean, there's, there's trickery and coercion and, and effectively it is abduction. Um, but it's, what's really interesting is all the figures along, along the way. Um, so someone like Magda, for example, is, is a woman who works with Petra, but you know, there's a suggestion that she's been a victim of this in the past, or yeah. he, I think he calls her an old whore. Is that, that correct? Yeah. And she's probably all of 28. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah. she kind of acts like on this horrid journey she on one level she acts like she's protecting Nico from from the worst of what can mm. happen to her but on the other hand she's the one who drugs her and you know mm. she's part of the manipulation yeah. of Nico yeah um, I'm, and, and and you know that's that's that that idea of the ghost estate as well the image of the ghost estate you know I, I felt like Magda was kind of this ghost character she's stuck between two worlds and her only way to stop servicing men is to procure young girls. So mm-hmm. what would you do in that circumstance? I mean, um, I, can, I can't imagine any woman not taking that option. But Nico is so young and Nico, the character of Nico seems to bring, bring heart to everybody she meets. Everybody. I mean, even some of the men in the world. Um, she has this quality and she softens Sammy as well and Magda and puts Magda at risk mm-hmm. because... You know, Magda feels this kind of protective maternal urge towards Nico, which is dangerous. You can't have those feelings in that world. And it, and it, and it, it, it ultimately is very dangerous for her. And we don't actually fully know what happens to her because she, she puts herself at risk to get Nico out of the worst scenario where we meet them in, in Moldova in the, in the bar, the ghost girls, they call them. So Nico ends up in Dublin and mm. in this house with Sammy. And there's almost kind of, there's a very natural bond between the two girls. Um, and it's funny because I kind of often have a reaction when, you know, in this scenario where there's two girls together and having had being alone, I sort of start to relax. It's like, oh, well, at least they have each other. But then you have to remind yourself that you don't actually know what the author's intentions are. It's not necessarily the case that yeah. they're, just, they're just because they're together, they're going to be okay. And, and actually a lot of, what befalls Nico hasn't happened yet or we haven't seen it happen so yeah you're right the worst happens to her when she's in Sammy's presence yeah so there's almost a delay yeah. you know, that yeah. adds to the tension yeah. I thought very effective but you know how important was it for you to have moments of I guess I call it relative relief in in, in an narrative like this yeah really important I mean I and actually I wasn't conscious of this, but I remember it was kind of afterwards reading. I read uh, an evil cradling. I don't know if you've read in in the room uh, Brian Keenan's memoir about his time in captivity in Beirut with John McCarthy, and it was so beautifully rendered. And you know, at the level of the sentence as well, and his prose and his care. But what really struck me, they were in absolute bleak, you know, hideous captivity and depraved, sadistic. Um, guards and everything mm-hmm. but they found fa- and this was true that, that these two men they found such solace in each other and friendship and humor and they would make stories up and again the power of the imagination and I remember being so moved by that book and thinking you know how extraordinary that even in these circumstances humanity it's the sanctity of the individual I think and I really really wanted to express that that you know there is this part the spirit or the imagination that, you know, 
is 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 not trammeled. It's 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 always it's always something that we can access. So that's what I was playing with. So I'd like to ask you to read another extract oh, yeah. now, and this is from from Nico's okay. point of view. Yes. So this is exactly the same point in the narrative for Nico, and it's pretty self-explanatory. Uh, so just before she leaves home. The man arrives at the front door and seems to suck all the air from the room. He stands in the exact place Luca had been, his feet planted wide apart, his shoulders squared, head nearly touching the doorframe. Papa says, come in, Peter, come in, sit down, sit down, and gets off his chair and offers it to him. No one has ever sat in Papa's chair before. The man walks in, his heavy boots trailing dirt after him. He sits on the good chair, which creaks beneath his weight, leans back and looks around the room. He has not yet regarded me. Would you like some of Nikolai's homemade ratchu? It's particularly sweet this season, Mama asks. He nods curtly, without any please or thank you. Luca stands. Go out and feed the chickens, Papa says. I will when I'm good and ready, Luca says, staring at the man defying Papa for the first time. So this is the man who's to marry my sister? He extends an arm that could be a punch, but which turns into a stiff handshake instead. Both men grip hard. I can see the skin turn red on Luca's fingers and white after when the man releases his hand. I look at Luca and try to smile at him, but Papa glares at him in such a way that he cannot look at me or smile back. He stands stiff and tall, puffing out his chest, the way he does when Sergio tells him to strip and get into the barrel that he and Victor would roll down the hill. Luca only cried once. It was going to happen anyway. The man swallows the wine in one gulp. What strange weather, Papa says. A storm has been threatening all day. He looks out the window at the low, dusty yellow sky and then down at the glass in his hand, blowing on it absent-mindedly, as if he's about to drink from a cup of hot tea. The man makes no attempt to join in the conversation. I move from the fire towards Mama. I want her to wrap me in her arms and pull me close. She moves away. She's busy cleaning. I stand beside her and try to get a sense of this man who is to be my husband. He has a brown mark on his cheek, a sign from God that he is touched. He thinks he's better than us. I can see it from the way he coldly scans the room, my papa and Luca, and the fact that he has not once looked at Mama or me. He speaks, and his voice rumbles like the thunder that has been bursting to sound all day. Thursday. Yes, Papa says. She's to your liking then. Mama clatters the dishes in the sink. Luca puffs out his chest even further. I pinch the skin on my forearm. The man nods. Where are you taking her? Luca asks. None of your cheeks on, Papa says. The man puts his empty glass down on the table and leaves. He does not thank Mama. He does not speak to me. What is it about me that makes him want to claim me as his wife? We have not even exchanged a glance. He does not know the colour of my eyes. He's not so old or fat, not like Katerina's husband. He is tall and has good shoulders. Mama says to Papa, no, I will not allow it. Who asked you, woman? Papa says, and then he goes to her and puts his arms around her. This is the first time I have seen him do this. She slumps against him. He has money, he will look after her and us. She will have better opportunities than we could ever give her. I walk to the door and inhale deeply, feeling as if all the factory smoke is clogging my lungs, filling them with burning ash. It'll be okay, Papa says to my back. He'll buy you nice things and bring you to nice places. I've made sure he's a good man. 
An image of the goat frothing at the mouth comes to mind. His voice wavers slightly as he tries to convince himself that he is doing the right thing, being the responsible father, and that this is, after all, the best fate for a girl like me. I turn to look at him to challenge the lie in his eyes, but he looks away. His voice is full of rapture as he says, You're a lucky girl, Nico. You will see the sea. I've always wanted to see the sea. Thank you very much again, Lisa. I mean, we see there, I think, you know, just how different the backgrounds of Sammy and Nico are and and their personalities as well. But there is a kind of a sort of a grim similarity to the the sense of entitlement amongst the men that they meet who who want to pay for their bodies. Mm. Tell us about the the men in this book and, you know, what you learned from the researching. Not a great deal, to be honest. (laughs) I mean, you know, look, it's the commodification of, you know, the female body. It's, It's very hard to comprehend as a woman. Mm. Um, I didn't manage to get anybody to talk to me honestly who's a punter or, you know, to share. Um, I, I, that's what I say. I find it really hard to climb inside any of the men's head and kind of make it real, you know, without caricaturing. I tried with Dr. Yeah, O'Donoghue. Yes. Well, now he's a, a classic man, man with, with daughters as such. Same or, age, yeah. Yeah, yeah. so... yeah. Which is something I did come across on my research and, you know, and he's, he's very, he's top of the food chain and that, that, I don't know, look, it's a transaction. I don't know yeah. how people justify it. I don't know. Um, certain, certain amount of denial, I guess, but yeah, I, I don't yeah. know. I mean, there's dissociation in that transaction too, for sure. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I, I, but it wasn't something I was exploring in the book really because mm. I was, I, I really wanted to stay with the female experience, you know, yeah. um, because I knew I could do that justice. I, I knew I could I could channel that. And was it draining, you know, because you're kind of fully embodying these characters when you're writing them, uh, as you would when you're when you're acting. Mm. You, know? you know, at the end of the day, are you adept at, at letting go after that experience, or you know, when you when you shut down the computer? No, it's funny. No, it's funny you say that. And actually, I I often think for actors, it's something that we should be taught because I I was always cast as tragic characters like. <laughs> <laughs> I remember playing Laura in The Glass Menagerie and I had to panic attack on stage and I had no way of shutting it down. And I was right in there. I was always so immersive. And mm. as a writer, I'm very immersive as well. It's, it's, it's my process. And particularly if it's a first person narrative, I probably, you know, probably could have played either of those characters. Yeah. No, of course. And to be honest, to do a book like this justice, you've got to embody it and you've got to kind of channel that trauma. And it was, no, it wasn't a happy, it wasn't a happy time, but it couldn't be and it shouldn't have been, you know. Um, and how much of it was planned before you wrote it or did it kind of unfold? As, no, as no none of it was planned. Write? None of it. Yeah. Like, as I say, I didn't even know what, what form it was going to be. I didn't, I didn't know, was it going to be a play? I didn't know, it was just, I wrote lots of different monologues. So um, that leads me into my next question, actually, because it, it, it is going to be adapted for films, mm. is, is that right? Mm. And uh, what can you tell me about that project? It sounds like it could be incredibly yeah. important, different kind of, different to the novel, I guess, um, yeah. different uh, sensitivities around filming this, but tell me who's involved in that. Yeah, so that's now official, which is wonderful. And I had a few meetings with a couple of film 
um, makers who were interested in in the material, and I, I, you know, I won't name names, but I had a couple who were interested in making a thriller out of it, and uh, there was uh, and and kind of talking about the horror. But the person who I've who I'm now working with is he's a young Northern Irish director called Michael Lennox, and he's directing the Dairy Girls at the moment. I don't know if anyone's seen it. So he does a lot of um, comedy, and I I met him, and the way he talked about the characters, he. It was it was incredible. It was like, you know, he, he it was like he had gone there himself. And he also spent time in Moldova. He's a beautiful person. He he um he worked in orphanages in Moldova. He knows the world intimately. He knows how poverty he's seen firsthand, you know, how poverty can kind of create these vulnerabilities. Um and he wants to make very much a character-driven kind of portraiture film and he was talking about filmmakers that I love in the meeting and I thought wow we both like Lenny Abrahamson Garage Adam and Paul and Room they would be three you know that that approach to filmmaking um and then he was talking about Pan's Labyrinth I don't know if yeah um so that's actually playing into more of the sort of dissociation and, absolutely and so there's ele- elements yeah because there's elements in the book that are quite heightened and surreal and he was excited as a filmmaker about that and he wants to bring you know he's very interested in that juxtaposition of beauty and trauma which mm. d- uh what's his what's the director del Guillermo del, del toro. toro yes del toro he does that so brilliantly um particularly in Pan's Labyrinth. So it's mm. it's the, you know, I thought it was the Spanish Civil War, but it's actually five years after the Civil War. But this this brutality that's going on and this kind of sadistic character and then these beautiful flights of fantasy and creating something beautiful out of, I guess, something really horrific. And I knew instantly when I sat with him, I just knew that he was the right person. He's really sensitive you know, there's going to be absolutely no um, filming uh, directly of sex scenes, which I was very careful not to write in the book. Uh, so we're going to we're going to kind of focus on some of the periphery characters as well. Um, Magda and Irina, for instance, are going to become one. We're going to start much later in the book. The ghost, the go- the, the house, and the ghost estate is very much a living, breathing character in the in the film version. So, yeah, I think visually he's very exciting and. He's got the right heart for this project, so. So it sounds like a very uh, promising collaboration. Yes, and my, and you're, gonna, you're going is, to write is, the, the yeah. script. Yeah, I yeah. am. I mean, I I, fully, I went into the meeting fully prepared to say no. I don't know the first thing about it, and he said, "Look, I've read some of your plays, the, the book. You know, he said I, you're the only person I want to do it. So uh, I'm going to try. Um, you know, I'm going into development next year. So it's really exciting. But I mean, you, you mean. You've done. You have written plays before, and you're also a short story writer. And mm. this is your first novel. What was the sort of difference with writing a novel? Did you find was there anything about it that surprised you? See, I honestly think had I told myself when I set out that I'm writing a novel, I would have stopped. I would have got too intimidated by the form. Mm. Um, so, as I didn't know, was it was it a series of short stories? Was it you know a play? I didn't really know. I just played, and it just got bigger and bigger and bigger. And then I realized that these two characters, you know, they were kind of speaking to each other in in their separate worlds. It was like echoes between the two of them. Um, but we were discussing this earlier. You know, the, the 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 kind of traditional form of the novel. It's changed so much, and 
I would be quite intimidated by the traditional form of the novel, the third person, past tense. So you do what comes naturally. And I think the form is so mutable now. It's it's wide open. There are no rules. There are no rules. (laughs) Yeah. But I mean, obviously the the experience hasn't put you off because I understand you are writing another novel. Mm, I am. It hasn't been as easy. This... This was like a response and it came out fully formed. Actually, there was no editing with this, which is now I realise quite, you know, very unusual because the second novel's gone through rounds and rounds and... Notes. <laughs> notes. And it's, it's, it's trickier. It's, yeah. a, it's a much trickier process. And I think I have pressure now that I didn't have before. I was very much writing this in the dark, you know, harvesting. And because of the subject matter, I didn't think... I wasn't sure I was going to get into the world and many publishers turned it down. Well, I was going to ask you about that because, you know, I, I understand, you know, not every book is for every publisher. But I have mm. to say, I was a bit depressed to read that some publishers were, you know, like saying it's difficult to market, doesn't have mass yeah. appeal. Yeah. That I know I know it's a happy ending you found a publisher, but uh, which is New Island, I think I mentioned. Um, but did... Did that surprise you as well or did it? No, it didn't surprise me. I actually genuinely didn't know if it was going to be picked up at all. I really mm. didn't. Um, I mean, there was a lot of, it's just too grim. Who's going to want to read about that? They kind of, you know, that's kind of, I guess I understand that. It's not an easy topic to engage with. Particularly if reading is a form of entertainment or escapism. You know, you don't bring it on your beach holiday, do you? Although I've well, heard some people have recently. I don't know. I mean, there's escapism, but there's also empathy. And, and, and mm. I think if we don't have books like this, then we we're, we're, we are, you know, missing a, a trick. I mean, I think uh, Sabina Higgins is correct when she says it deserves to be widely read. And it needs to be widely read. So Yeah. I mean, I mean, it's difficult if it's like, if it, you know, if they're marketing it of like the sex trafficking book, mm. because that's what I actually didn't want to do. Yeah. Yeah, And, you know, even if we see now there's the white slavery season on BBC and there's been lots of TV channelling of this topic and they're, they're very brutal. They're, they're very graphic, very brutal. There was the one off uh, Doing Money, which mm. I saw, which was which was very harrowing to watch. I had to turn it off. Yeah. That tells you, you know, my sensibility yeah. around this topic. Yeah. So, um, there was one sort of friendly face towards the end. <laughs> yeah, but, it was but grim, I needed to grim, approach grim. this from a different place. Yeah. You know? Yeah. From a place of humanity and heart and, I guess, yeah, imagination. So the title is very striking. How did you decide on harvesting as a title? Um, well, that was there from the very beginning. I actually, I love the word harvest. It's one of my favourite words. And I always think it's quite, it's beautiful and it's dark. So it's it's that juxtaposition. And then we think of, you know, when we think of harvesting, we think of harvesting organs. And um, then we also think of harvesting crops but harvesting girls, you know, so it works. It's, it, it, it just, it, it never left me. There was some discussion when they were with various publishers, when we we're trying to make it maybe a little bit more palatable for the, the marketplace that, you know, with girls in the title, you know, all these oh, books see. with girls yeah. in the title. Yeah. So yeah. yeah, cloud girls was kind of bandied around. And I was like, no, that's no, that's not, you know, it's not the right feeling. Um, we we mentioned the book you're writing on, writing on now, but I don't think we mentioned it. it was it's a it is about addiction. Is that correct? <laughs> Such a cheery soul. About... <laughs> yeah. Like... Um, so yeah. <laughs> yeah. And my agent was saying to me, "Oh God, it's relentless." Like, oh God. <laughs> but it, is it still called? It's called Overspill. Is that correct? It's called Overspill. Overspill. Yeah. And so you're you're you're. 
some way into the process, but you're, yeah, no, you're, I finished, you... I finished a few yeah. different variations drafts, but, um, <laughs> I have to, I actually do need to focus on getting light and shade, you know, that, yeah, that thing no, that, it is important. That is, I think it's in harvesting, <laughs> but yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. I'll write a chiclet one of these years. Are you, you're, you're, you still have the same publisher, so you don't have to go, do you, or you don't have to go? N- no, because I've got a new agent. Oh, so. okay. Yeah. <laughs> So you might get somebody saying. So who knows? It'll go on submission. (laughs) Oh, we will. Yes. Yes. She's already had readers say that. (laughs) (laughs) But I mean, yeah, I don't know. So that's a funny one, isn't it? When you trust your impulse or you try to kind of please the market. It's a funny one for writers to grapple with. I'll just wrap up by saying thanks very much to everyone in the live audience tonight for coming to this podcast event. Um, thanks to sound engineer JJ Vernon over there and um, the books editor of the Irish Times, Martin Doyle, everyone in the Irish Writers' Centre for hosting us. But a very special thank you, of course, to you, Lisa Harding. Thank you.